0: And then the air pressure suddenly changes and it just hits me with this whack. And like in like a millisecond, I just for the first time in my life accepted, this is it. This is how I die. You know, it's all over. And the most sickening feeling of, of pure fear. I mean, I'm not prepared for it. It was just the most surreal shock feeling of pure fear like I can never describe. I mean, it all happens so fast. I mean, I'm just engulfed by this thing and... I guess any second I just expect it to go black. I expect, you know, I'm just going to be sort of buried and that's it. You know, I'm never going to see my family again. And I just expect it's going to go black and I'm going to be left up here forever.
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun.
2: Adventure Sports Podcast, Episode 147, Overcoming Childhood Adversity by Climbing Mount Everest with Alex Staniforth. Hey, I wanted to thank all of you who have responded to our online survey. We're getting some great results and great answers, and it really lets us know who's actually out there listening. And there's been some surprising uh, results out of that, so I really do appreciate it. If you want to take that online survey, just go to our site, adventuresportspodcast.com, and look for the Take the Survey button up in the top right-hand corner. We also wanted to thank all of you who have been sharing the Adventure Sports Podcast uh, with your friends on social media. It's been a big help. We really do appreciate it, so thank you. Now imagine you're 18 years old and your biggest dream is to conquer Mount Everest. After all of the months of planning, preparation, and fundraising, you end up being turned around by one of the worst avalanches in Everest history. My next guest is 20-year-old Alex Staniforth. Not only was Alex's first Everest attempt foiled by the avalanche in 2014, but his team tried again the following year, and on April 25th, 2015, they found themselves smack in the middle of another one. This one took 22 lives. Alex, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Travis. How's it going?
2: It's going great, I thank you for your time and being here. so let's start with a little bit of history on yourself. I mean, you're a young guy, you're twenty now, and you were you were trying to to make these attempts as a teenager. That's pretty young to to try something like Everest. What is it in your your childhood that drove you so early to uh to try something like everest? How was your upbringing? Were you an adventurous kid from the from the start or
0: yeah, I'm mean, basically, you know, I wasn't adventurous. I hated sport. I hated the outdoors. My family weren't really outdoorsy, and I guess I found it by chance. When I was about nine years old when I had epilepsy, and I've not had a seizure now for nine or ten years. But in itself, it was just, you know, the start of much actually bigger issues when I was a kid. You know, since I've been about four years old, I've actually had a bit of a bad stammer in my speech, which comes and goes. You know, actually, when the hell it wants. You know, the thing is, I mean, obviously that in itself actually made school pretty hard for me. You know, pretty stressful. I was probably bullied pretty much throughout every single day at school. I didn't have any confidence, mental health problems. You know, it was a pretty hard time. And basically, I think I was about 14 when I, re- I was actually on a holiday when I was trying paragliding. And I just had this sort of strange urge. I don't really know where it came from. But basically, I decided that I wanted to try this extreme sport, you know, where I would throw myself off a 7,000-foot peak. And... It was just weird. this urge just came from nowhere. You know, that just completely changed my life because then I realized, you know, I could uh, achieve things. I could push myself. I could overcome things. And I guess from then on, I just wanted to try and find, you know, what could I overcome next? I mean, after the epilepsy and the stammering and the bullying and everything else, I guess, you know, the outdoors became my way of sort of, you know, proving myself wrong and proving all the bullies wrong. And I guess all the confidence came back to me after all those years. And so from then on, I just wanted to try more and more extreme sports in the outdoors and trying to push myself more and more. And I recall being invited hill walking in in the Lake District, you know, uh, in Britain. And uh, I just recall being sat there and I asked my friend, the stepdad, you know, where is Everest? I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know where it was. I didn't even know where it just, you know, I didn't even know where it came from. This thing just randomly popped into my head. But that would inspire me to go home and, that you know, and search online and find out more about it. And I remember seeing a picture of Everest and just straight away being captivated. It just seemed like the biggest thing that I could overcome, the biggest thing that I could achieve. And I knew I wanted it more than anything. I just could never have imagined that I'd have been standing at a space camp just four years later. So that's it, really. I'm, I'm definitely not a, an outdoors, you know, I, I definitely start in the outdoors. It's just been a, a way for me of trying to overcome adversity, really, and trying to inspire other people.
2: Wow, that's great! You know, so it's not—I uh, pro- guess you couldn't really find a way to to overcome, you know, this epilepsy and stammer. But you've discovered this this almost unconquerable mountain, and you just—you know—something just triggered. It was just a matter of, yeah, like, sure. Hey, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm going to go conquer this because this truly is, you know, the biggest thing in the world when it comes to to mountain climbing to conquer. And that's a—that's uh, pretty—that's pretty crazy. Yeah,
0: sure. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a strange story and the thing is it's not really it's not really gone how expected, but you know, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, and um, I've still have my stamina. I but the thing is now because of Ebb I I now get paid to stand up and speak and I've got a book out. So <laughs> it's 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 worked out really cool actually. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: So what is it like leading up to to making your attempt at Everest, um, obviously, we, we talked about you know, some preparations that you made, but take us through the, the, the experience of getting ready and then the travel over there and, and getting to base camp itself. I mean, a lot of us, obviously, we, we know of Everest, but we don't really know what it takes to actually even get to the base camp to, before you can even start your ascent.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I've obviously learned a lot, from, you know, my experiences. I think the first time around, I certainly wasn't particularly happy with my sort of, you know, and my shape. I don't think I'd, I, don't think I was really done enough. And last year, I felt I had, um, you know, when I was actually fourteen. Since then, I mean, I was on Everest when I was eighteen. So, you know, in four years, I guess I've had to cram in a lot of stuff into a short time. I think I see Normie Everest is done after years and years of experience, you know, and lots and lots of peaks and. I think it's when I was about seventeen when I climbed the first sort of major peak, which is Mont Blanc, and then obviously, you know, that's that's about four thousand eight uh four thousand eight hundred metres. So, you know, it's it's you know, it's quite high. But that was just another you know, start then because the thing is you know, actually from there in two thousand twelve my next sort of step on the journey was to try a seven thousand metre peak on Brunsi uh, in the Himalayas, and peak, which is about six thousand four hundred metres. So that for me was my sort of major experience prior and of course, you know, lots and lots of stuff in Scotland because there's no place quite like it it's just completely wild and it's you know it's well known to be one of the best places you know for Everest prep because it just kind of forces you to kind of you know care for yourself and to be out there in the pain and just sort of suffer really because Everest of course it's I guess really it's a case of being able to suffer for a long period of time um I'm, I, of course you know I mean I'm doing lots of stuff I mean on the bike and in the gym and but really I mean I think what's you know you know but i think what's sort of most important you know is time out in the mountains that is absolutely essential so really in the build-up um it's pretty full-on because it's not just the training it's the fundraising i mean everest is pretty expensive and i spent nearly a year and a half working on it full-time almost as a job you know just trying to train and find the money um and basically in the weeks prior you know it's kind of big hill days and big bike rides and just getting to the point where you've got nothing left to give um I was injured from running for for about a year and a half. So basically, before my first expedition in the Himalayas, I was pretty unfit for the challenge I had ahead of me. I, you know, I'd only just come back to kind of hard training about six months prior. So I wasn't in the best shape. I just had to do what I could, um, you know, in a short space of time, really. And I was doing a lot more, actually, better specific stuff, stuff in the Alps and then the huge hill walks and hill challenges and multi-day endurance stuff. And that, that was what I think really made a big difference.
2: So getting to the base camp
0: in and of itself, um, you have a, a quite a bit of a, a trek to get there, don't you? Um, yeah, I mean both times. I mean our I expedition operator Tim, um, I think his schedule was kind of different to most o- uh, other expeditions. We took about three weeks to walk into base camp from Lukla, which is quite a long time. Normally it's doing ten to two, you know ten days to two weeks. The thing is then you know by sort of like early April, a lot of expeditions are kind of sat at base camp actually bored i'm mean, actually I having actually bad altitude headache so it's, it's much better to kind of go in sort of smaller steps and smaller altitude gains and you know just kind of you know just kind of go really really slowly so you get to base camp in really good shape um but the trek itself i didn't find particularly challenging i mean obviously the, on the first expedition we didn't get higher than base camp you know i obviously trained for actually heading actually much higher um but i don't find the base camp trek particularly difficult but i know for but of course you know it's 5300 meters and for a lot of people it's it's an Everest in itself. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean in out here in Colorado, we're pretty proud of getting to, you know, up over fourteen thousand feet. Yeah, and, I bet. <laughs> you know, you are getting, you know, fifteen thousand feet just to just to get to the start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, sure. Very cool. So on the first attempt you, you made it to base camp and you had just had you just decided that you weren't really ready to try and make the ascent up Everest, or what stopped you on that first try?
0: Um, Basically, a day before we arrived at base camp, um, I think it was the 17th of April, uh, sorry, no, the 18th of April, um, there was a major avalanche in the Cumbu Icefall, and this one was just, you know, it just happened by chance, but sadly it killed 16 climbing who were heading up to Camp 1. Although that in itself shouldn't have, you know, it shouldn't have cancelled our attempt. Basically, what happened then was a pretty long and complex story where a political motive pretty much hijacked, you know, the whole tragedy and the loss of 16 lives. And basically, you know, I think it's then a small number pretty much indoctrinated all the others. And basically there were a small number who held the others on r- ransom, basically saying that if they helped us climb, they would be hurt. And basically they refused to climb, you know, we didn't realize at the time that this event was actually them trying to get the government to try and get more insurance and more payment. But basically they had to do that by stopping us, by by biting the hands, you know, that feed them. And that was what was, you know, and that turned into a huge shame because most of the Sherpas wanted to work and climb as normal. And as a result, of course, you know, didn't get paid because it was the first year where pretty much no expeditions reached the top uh, on the south side because pretty much all the expeditions cancelled and went home after a week. So it was, it, was, it was a real mess. It was a horrible, you know, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And basically after a week... We had, you know, we didn't have much choice but to pack up and head home. So we didn't actually get any higher than base camp in the first year because of, you know, the avalanche. But in itself, it, it wasn't, you know, you know, it wasn't on the avalanche. It was just everything else, you know, happened as, you know, as a result, really. So that was what happened the first year. Yeah, so that's just bad timing,
2: unfortunately. And it's got to be tough on the, the Sherpas that want to work at the same time because they're trying to feed their
0: family on this income. That's the most sort of frustrating thing, you know, the thing is, you know, is they basically hurt their own kind. And it just it just seemed a really kind of ridiculous sort of situation really um but of course, you know you know in two thousand fifteen was another avalanche, but this was of course for an entirely different reason so where
2: were you when this on the second attempt uh in two thousand fifteen when the bigger avalanche or i should say the the avalanche that killed more people, where were you um in that area because this one rolled through base camp and 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 really Caused havoc.
0: Well, I was heading up to Camp One for the first time, so our team, apart from obviously, you know, apart from obviously staff at Base Camp, i you know, actually headed up from Base Camp that that day. So we literally only left Base Camp a few hours earlier. So when the earthquake struck, I mean, the thing is, I didn't actually feel it. I was so tired that day that I never even felt the ground shaking. You know, that obviously started not just one avalanche. I mean, of course, it, you know, the avalanche, you know, in Base Camp was the was the most catastrophic. But there were avalanches all over the place. And I was about half an hour away from Camp 1. So I was I was probably about 5,900 meters. You know, if you're in throw, that's about the same height as my Kilimanjaro. Um, most of my team were already ahead of me. I was just at the top of the icefall. I'd got over all the sort of steeper sections. I was just plodding along on the rope on my own. There was two of my team probably half an hour behind me and some ahead of me. Because it was such a horrible day in the fog and in the mist and the snow that I couldn't see maybe t- more than 20 meters in front of me. So I was pretty much completely on my own, you know, plodding along and just focusing on one step at a time. And that was, of course, when I heard this huge crack, the sound of obviously ice breaking off the mountain and then this distant, distant roar coming at me from above like an express train. And that was when I sort of felt, okay, this, 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 this is serious. I'm in trouble because I know, of course, that's, a, that, you know, this big avalanche is coming straight towards me and I'm near enough where the guys died in the avalanche for that, you know, 2014. When you
2: were thinking about doing avalanche and preparing it for it, did you really have a sense of the danger? I mean, did you? Was this a real option uh, that that this could be happening to you when you were preparing for it, or was it a bit of an awakening?
0: The I mean, avalanche, you mean? Right. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, it was surreal. I mean, I, I was so tired, you know, from the altitude. I mean, the thing is, that day we had heavy packs on because you know we got gear and supplies, obviously bringing them up to Camp One. Um, so it was pretty hard going. I suffered all day and I knew I was nearly there. I was just focusing on arriving at camp and having a rest, you know, and I think when I heard this sound, I mean, I didn't really, Oh uh, uh, yeah. Cause I, I sort, I, I sort of panics, you know, I realized I'm in trouble and especially as this noise is coming at me from above, like an express train, like a big primal roar, but I can't, the thing is I can't see it because of the fog. <laughs> so I can, I can hear this thing coming at me from the West shoulder of Everest on my side, but I can't see a thing. And I think that was probably worse. So I remember just suddenly having more energy than I felt all day. And I could feel my heart pounding through to the floor. And I think I just remember thinking I need to get out of the way as soon as possible. But of course, at that altitude, you can't run. And on all sides, I've got these massive 300-foot drops, you know, in the glacier. And, you know, I'm just trying to kind of move as fast as I can, thinking that I may, I may escape the path. But I do recall, like, after maybe a minute or so, this... this Roaring noise is just like, just like, it doesn't stop. But I just remember calming down and presuming that I've escaped. I mean, I wasn't quite there. I was a little bit dazed, but I just remember I, I kept stopping to look to my left, trying to work out where it's going to come from. And of course, I'm on my own. There's nobody I can speak to. Um, I kind of thought, should I kind of, you know, should I stay on the rope or should I unclip? I mean, what's the best, you know, what's the best chance of survival? But I remember feeling quite calm and I sort of assumed that I must have escaped because it should have hit me by now. And then the air pressure suddenly changes and it just hits me with this whack and like, in like a millisecond I just, for the first time in my life, accepted this is it, this is how I die. You know, it's all over. And the most sickening feeling of, of pure fear. I mean, I'm not prepared for it. It was just the most surreal, shot feeling of pure fear like I can never describe. I mean, it all happens so fast. I mean, I'm just in by this thing and I guess any second I just expect it to go black. I expect, you know, I'm just going to be sort of buried and that's it. You know, I'm never going to see my family again. And how can I put them through this? And I'm thinking about all sorts of things. And I just think, you know, you idiot. How can you, you know, how can you do this to your parents and everybody else? And I just expect it's going to go black and I'm going to be left up here forever. And then I'm trying to fight this thing and I'm engulfed by like this, you know, you know, just by white in all directions. I can't breathe from the snow going down my throat and I'm just kind of wondering when it's going to go black, you know, and I can't hear anything, but it's definitely wind probably coming through at hundred miles an hour. You know, just as sort of, you knock me down on, on my knees and I'm trying to stand up and punch and kick and swim thinking if I'm swept away, you know, I've got a better, I've got a better chance of survival. But after maybe a minute or so, it just, it just stops. You know, the snow just falls ground, falls to the ground and the wind just falls silent. I just, I look down and I'm covered in snow like some sort of, you know, some sort of snowman and I'm just, just cannot believe I'm alive. I mean, that, I knew what happened, but I didn't waste a second. It, it, I just shot off to, to camp as soon as I could. It was all shock really. And I think even today I can still picture that feeling of just being completely helpless. You know, it's, I can't really describe it. It's all I can say really it's not
2: the actual death that we fear it's the it's the feeling of uh letting our family down i guess you know it's like how could i have done this to my family it's not so much how could i have put myself in this position to potentially lose my life and that's how i always imagine it but for to hear you say it you walked through it um and then and that's the experience you had that's pretty crazy that we think that way it was
0: crazy i mean i think it just it was it was a surreal feeling like I have never had I mean I think all of us have been really scared but this was like nothing else I mean when you genuinely accept death and at my age you know I think how can this be happening I remember feeling that but it's all a bit, a bit of a blur to me now I think the thing is you know pretty much everybody on the mountain was hit by an avalanche but it was just powder of course I see base camp was was just full of rock and ice and that's why of course it just caused all the damage and death but, but the thing is you know I've never been avalanche before and when you hear that thing coming towards you, you don't know it's a powder avalanche. You just think it's going to bury you. And it was basically just a big blast of snow. It was pretty harmless. But as I said, you know, when it's coming towards you, you just don't know when it's going to stop. And I pretty much stayed standing in the same place. You know, it, I wasn't kind of swept away or anything, as I expected I would be. But as I said, when when it's coming at you like that, you just, it, it, it's, just it's just a shock. And it wasn't only me. I mean, the thing is, you know, I then... Caught up with two guys in my team who, you know, who are much older and stronger and experienced you know, than I was. You know, one of them was 60. And these guys were just like shaking, you know, they were like hugging each other and there was crying and all sorts. And plus one guy, I mean, the thing is, you know, he was obviously higher up. And you know, I think, you know, I think all of us had just been hit by blast that obviously been obviously knocked down by the earthquake. You know, but the avalanche had come down so fast with such force that it smashed up his glasses. And, you know, the thing is, it come that fast that it just actually wipes them out clean, which just says, that even though it's powder, it's still pretty powerful stuff, you know. And basically, when we caught up with them, all the ropes have been buried. And, of course, we can't can't move any further because, of course, you know, you know because all the routes are Camp 1, there's crevasses everywhere. Um, and then we can see one of the first tents through the fog. It's just completely flattened. And, you know, all the climbers are trying to, like, trying to sort of find stuff and help out. And then I guess our first fall was is anybody going to be alive up here? You know, are all the tents buried? Um, but in the fog, we, we, we couldn't see anything. And I just add on, uh, on that note, I mean, basically two of our team who were already at camp one came down uh, on a short rope and obviously found us. Um, however, I didn't realize at the time until I was told by one of my team that they were uh, on a search mission. However, they weren't trying to find me. They were trying to find the two guys who were about half an hour ahead of me. Um, and basically they'd already agreed that because I was so far behind the others, that I either couldn't have survived or wouldn't survive the night you know and that's pretty hard to take wow yeah yeah I mean when you hear that but even now I mean obviously sat here you know like almost a, you know almost a, almost 10 months later it still sends sends kind of it just you know it still puts the hairs on of my arms you know I'll never forget that, those words even
2: yeah that really puts things into perspective for you I'm sure <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs>
1: Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and splitboarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rossignol, Solomon Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment including the latest skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Never run out of camp stove fuel again.
2: The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180TAC.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. assume there's radio communication between camps um yeah how did you first learn that the that base camp had been hit so hard
0: and and people actually did perish well the thing is it was all all really weird because i never even knew about an earthquake until i got in my tent and you know a guy on my team kind of asked me about i was like what earthquake he's like didn't you feel it i was like no um but basically account one they literally felt that all the glacier was going to like fall off the mountains you know it shook that badly um and there's a guy on my team who's been in the army and he said he's never felt so close to death before as that you know and that really brings it home but basically i just recall you know we kind of got kind of you know we got roped up and we kind of walked into camp and out you know the tents were okay you know i'm not sure how many tents were at camp one there was quite a lot but the only ones that were damaged were the ones actually right at the start of camp i remember coming up and all of our team there was about 12 or 13 of us and i remember us being kind of crowded around the tent just trying to work out what was going to do. I was just shaking through, I think from cold because, you know, all the snow had gone down uh, into my clothes and, you know, uh, all over me really. And I just remember Rob, one of the guides on our team, you know, he got on the he got on the radio and I just remember hearing Henry, our base camp manager. And, he, you know, he's, you know, he's very well known in Everest. He's, you know, he's been doing trips there for, for decades now. In fact, he was, in fact, he was the guide for Bear Grills back in 98, I think it was, which is pretty cool. Um, and Henry, you know, he's a, he's a tough old ox. You know, he's the sort of guy who doesn't show a lot of emotion. And I just remember on the radio, um, Rob kind of calling down asking if it was OK. The thing is, we didn't know anything about an avalanche at base camp. And I just remember Henry and his voice, the panic, just saying it's chaos, it's destroyed, everything's gone, everything's gone. And we're all like shocked. We're just trying to like picture in our minds how base camp can be gone. You know, we, you know, we just, you know, you know, has it kind of fallen into a crack in the earth? Has it? We, we, we just couldn't picture in our minds. And we, we never even thought thought an avalanche could hit base camp. We just, we just can't work it out. And all of us, I remember us crowding around. Just some of us just shaking our heads. Some people crying. Some people just looking stunned. You know, base camp. You know, like our home has gone, but we don't know if, where's it gone. And Henry just sounded completely in the panic. Um, and of course, we're up at Camp 1 completely, completely unaware of what's happening below. And and equally, you know, they think that, you know, if they've been avalanched, well, how are we, you know, how are we alive? Because, of course, you know, we are, you know, because in the Western Coombe, we've got two huge mountain walls on either, you know, on either side, which will just dump a load of snow on us, which they did. Um, so there was a lot of panic all over the place. Uh, it wasn't until that, that night that, um, I remember hearing on the radio outside, um, then we learned that three of our Sherpa were dead. I just remember hearing somebody scream, um, and I just remember lying there in my tent, just the, the words just going through my mind like a bad dream, you know, just trying to, just disbelief, just, just disbelief at what's happening. Uh, and I think that was the first we knew of it, but I think, I remember in the first night thinking of all my friends at base camp and all the people who were in the icefall below us. You know, we didn't know who'd been hit hit worse. I mean, straight after you know, the avalanche, I mean, I, I fought straight away with my team behind me. I mean, you know, my guide, Tim, and and Ellis, my friend, they were actually behind, behind me. And I assumed that because I'd been a pass on the ice cliffs, you know, the hanging Syracs, that I thought that I just kind of had a close escape and that they were gone. I do recall at the time I got on the radio straight away and tried to call them. And there was no response. And I remember, you know, swearing and shouting at things, you know, you, you, you know, I just assumed that they weren't answering because, because, because they were dead. And I just remember thinking There's nothing I can do for them. I just have to get my, myself to safety as soon as I can. Um, and then I heard them speaking on the radio to each other. And that was when I knew everybody was okay. Uh, it was when we heard about base camp that we were just, To be honest, it's it's all a blur to me now. And I think even at the time, it was just, we just couldn't picture what happened. And I remember, I remember one of the guides coming in and asking, you know, do we know if a person had survived? And this was one guy who'd been just behind me in in, in the icefall. And that was when it really hit home. You know, what happened to all those people behind us? There's like 400 people at the base camp. And that was when we just, we just lost, you know, it was, it was panic and. Until we got down to base camp, we had no idea what to expect really. So for you, it was just a matter of of good timing. You could have been down in that camp with those people. We left that morning about five, six in the morning, quite early. Uh, so we left about six hours before it happened. The thing is, it was kind of a miracle because most of the expedition teams that were on the mountain that day there was ourselves, there was you know there was a team of Gurkhas, there was Madison Mountaineering, I think, are based in Washington, and you know Alan Arnett from Colorado, one of your own, and. You know, he was obviously part of Madison. Um, there was them. There was Jackie Globe. Um, actually, no, they were at base camp. Um, there was Summit Climb, who generally you know, a in the States, uh, Damazur. There were quite a lot of big teams, uh, adventure consultants. And all these teams were on the mountain that day. And, of course, ours are Himalayan guides, about 13, 14 of us. And basically, the avalanche at base camp Know it released a big section off Tamori, which is a big 7,000 meter peak on the side of base camp. The thing is, base camp's never been hit by an avalanche before, and that's why all of us couldn't get our heads around how it could have gone. Um, But the reason, of course, you know, older people died was because you know, know, the avalanche there was full of rock and ice and debris, you know, picked up at such incredible speed that you know, kind of came down like a skyscraper of, of you know, of rock and snow and ice, like a tsunami. And of course, you know, in the fog, people hadn't seen it till the, the very last minute. And now in the kind of central area of base camp was the most directly hit because, you know, teams on the far side had literally got a bit of powder, you know, and actually carried on having lunch, you know, completely unaware that like half a mile away, well, in fact, not even that far away, other teams have just been completely wiped out by the rock and the snow. Um, and our team was pretty much in the the worst hit camp of every team on the mountain. So basically... It was just a pure miracle that we, that, you know, all of us, now we're all that day. If we hadn't have been, there would have been probably another 30, 40 people killed. And we lost three of our Sherpas at base camp, Pasang Temba, Kumar and Tenzing. And we lost, you know, and there was two guys who were actually badly injured. Now, most of the deaths that happened at base camp were in the team next to us. There was an American guy who died in summit climb just behind us and pretty much all the teams to the left and right of us. Now, when I found my tent, uh, it was buried under a foot of hard snow and rock. It was like literally torn like a piece of paper. Our mess tent, where we the thing is, you know, that was a solid steel frame where we ate our meals. Now, bear in mind, you know the earthquake happened about just before twelve. You know, if we'd been at base camp, we would have been in our own tents, so or we would have been in the mess tent. But the mess tent was literally, you know, was literally thrown a hundred foot vertically in the air, and then just slammed down about twenty five meters away into the next camp just like a kind of a paper airplane, you know? And I think when we found our tents, because everything had literally gone, I mean, our camp as we knew it had just been ripped to shreds, you know, there was nothing left of it. Um, We knew that we would have been dead as well. I mean, there was no chance we could have survived. Most of us would have died if we hadn't left base camp that morning. And that for me is probably the hardest thing to take. You know, those guys were just doing their jobs at base camp and, had their hopes and dreams taken away in a flash, you know, when we were spared by a
2: matter of hours. Yeah, you think that you know the the people at base camp are the ones that are in a safe position. Yeah, exactly. I, exactly. I imagine they're placing base camps, you know, in the, in the, or the camps in areas where they're least vulnerable, and it's the guys that are actually up on the ropes that are ones that are that are vulnerable. And then to have it reversed like that is is insane. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was just completely reversed and. It it's just it's just surreal. I mean, you know, of course, you know you know, most of the people who died were, as I said, in the central area. Um and uh Yeah, I mean, you know, it was like a war zone. I mean we obviously we came down and just you know, certain parts were unscathed and the rest was just wiped out. I mean, there's everything from shoes to spades and everything just scattered all over the place and stuff a lot more quarry and um my tent, I found a massive boulder inside it. I mean I found my kit bag which had been left by my bed that morning and that was like a solid nylon bag, you know, like an outdoors sort of, you know, sort of a gear bag, and that had been hit by a rock at such speed that it literally pierced a hole clean in the side. And you just sort of think, if that hit my head, well, <laughs> I'd have been a goner, you know. Right, right.
2: Well, the uh, the destructive potential and the energy behind avalanches is just. It's purely unreal. It's unfathomable. Yeah. Um, yeah. About what <laughs> kind of preparation, avalanche training, did you have going into this? I mean, I, I can't imagine any preparation would really truly prepare you for what you witnessed. But did did what you have help at all, or did you feel like it was just
0: kind of like up to luck at that point? Um, in terms of preparation, I mean, no. I mean, I, I just say, you can't really prepare for you know, for Himalayan avalanche. I mean, of course. You know, in the Alps in Scotland, you know, it's the avalanche forecasting. It's you know, it's taking care on the kind of choice of routes, and that's you know, that's where experience and skills. You know, there are lots of ways to minimise actually the avalanche, you know, risk. The thing under the ice fall, you know, is of course, you know, is really you know the only actually place you know where avalanches can really occur, and as of course know happened in two thousand and fourteen. But the only thing I really sort of knew in terms of preparation is just the kind of punchy air and swim and kick, you know, trying to obviously to stay afloat. You know, if you're kind of swept away, there's more chance of an airspace and survival. The only real things that you can really do to minimize that risk is to leave for, uh, early in the morning while the ice is obviously colder and more stable and also move as fast as you can in the icefall, you know, so to get out of harm's way. Um, of course, at base camp, of course, that's never happened before. Nobody could have prepared for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So let's get into the book a little bit. Um, Speaking of Icefall, you named it Icefall. Um, Why did you name it that? Yes, the thing is, I mean, after my first expedition, I signed my book deal with Coventry House Publishing, who are actually based in Ohio over there. Um, And basically at the time, that book was going to be called One Mountain After Another. You know, just I guess that sort of stands for uh, all the obstacles faced. And it's not just the physical mountains, but it's all the kind of mountains in terms of all the obstacles. The thing is, there's lots of books on Everest and reaching the top. And... Basically, um, after another earthquake and you know and the disaster in 2015, um, I remember actually walking out of base camp and straight away, I mean, I sort of thought, well, you know, is my book actually happening still? Um, because, of course, I've not reached the top. But actually, as I said, you know, there's lots of books on Everest, but there's not, but there's no books currently out where I've been involved in the two biggest Everest disasters in history. Um, and so Icefall literally just came to me into my head just, Again, just kind of by chance, just out of nowhere, which can happen a lot, really. Which is cool. Um, and the ice fall is, of course, where the avalanches happened both in 2014 and last year. But it actually, means more than that because in the ice fall, I guess, it sort of shows actually, no matter how hard you work and how much you actually give, you know, uh, our ambitions and dreams can come actually falling down at any moment because you know it owes us nothing. And what matters is how we get back on our feet again. So I think ice fall has that meaning. Of just you know things can come actually falling down and crash and burn you know but the important thing is how you respond to that and I guess that's what my story has been about is been adversity and just coming back stronger you know and I guess that's where the that's where the that's where the name comes from. So your book
2: Ice Fall was just launched yesterday on March 9th. Tell people where they can
0: find it. Well, it's now on Amazon, uh, both in ebook and paperback versions. So Amazon, you know, is probably the sort of best place to be. Um, it will also be in main bookstores, both in Britain and in the and in the States as well. So yeah, I mean, I really hope people enjoy what should be an inspiring read. And I'm really pleased because it's been endorsed by Bear Grylls as well, uh, which is pretty cool. Plus, any signed books that I sell over here. Uh, in Britain, I'm also fundraising for a charity in Nepal called Moving Mountains, which obviously helps Nepal just build the earthquake as well.
1: Hey, River Rats. You've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yampa River on the Adventure Sports Podcast – now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the flat tops wilderness to the confluence with a green river in Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. <laughs> Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. Phoenix Multisport is a sober, active community that supports individuals who are healing from substance use disorder by providing free programs to help them maintain their sobriety. A few of these programs include CrossFit, yoga, boxing, cycling, and rock climbing and are offered to anyone who is 48 hours clean and sober. Phoenix Multisport provides programs in Colorado, Orange County, California, and Boston, Massachusetts. For more information on this nonprofit, go to www.phoenixmultisport.org. Together, we can help individuals rise from the ashes of their addiction and heal families.
2: What inspired you? I mean obviously it was it was the events that happened and the Sherpas that had died to do it, but what got you
0: motivated to to do this charity work? I think when I found the outdoors, I mean, at the same time, I, you know, I started fundraising. And I think it's just, uh, you know, it's really fulfilling that I can make a difference at the same time as achieving my own potential, you know, trying to explore and push my own limits and make a difference. And during the past few five years, normally outdoor adventures, I've now raised over £34,000 for all sorts of causes, uh, including Nepal, uh, cancer, and endangered animals as well. And I think for me, it's so rewarding that I can, you know, give something back, really. Oh, that's impressive. Good for you for doing that as well. Yeah,
2: thank you. Through all of these experiences on Everest, how does your family deal with it?
0: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, of course, you know, I've got their support. You know, it's hard for them actually understanding it and, you know, understanding why I want to take these risks and go back, you know, and it puts them through a lot, but they know this is what I'm passionate about and they know that they wouldn't stop me. Or, um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean... I think obviously next time will be even more nerve-wracking, but I don't think that they would stop me. I think um, when I was at Camp 1, I mean, I'm you know, I called home and, you know, a lot of my sat phone and kind of told mum there'd been a big avalanche and trying to sort of stay calm, which didn't get on very well. But yeah, you know, they are supportive and I'm really fortunate
2: for that. Well, that's good. So you say next time, and of course that was my
0: next question, are you planning on uh making another attempt. Well the cat's out the bag now. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean I think Everest it's been such a big part of my life for so long that I, I couldn't just kind of you know uh, abandon it. I mean I've come close to it in the past but you know I've given I've given and lost so much and worked so hard to get there. I think that if I never found out for sure it would just kind of like eat away at me really. So I will be going back at some point. Um not this year of course. I need a break. Um in the autumn, I am actually back in the Himalayas, not on Everest, but on a different peak on Expedition. However, that's going kind to of be kept in mean, the brats for now. However, you know, I should follow my journey, and of course, I should find all the updates, but I will be back in the Himalayas. And in the meantime, I'll be speaking and fundraising and doing all sorts of things, really, but I don't tend to stop. You know, this is what I try and do, and I'm always trying to make it a difference and inspire people and Oh, very
2: cool. Uh, it's got to be a tough balance. You know, you've, you've definitely dealt with tragedy and, and, and your family has gone through all of the, the worry and concern, but sure. you can't just throw something away just because of that. You also have to follow your dreams as well. And I completely get, you know, as much as you've been through on Everest, it's, it's I can imagine, how is it, you know, how can you walk away from that? It's, it's almost like you... You need to finally conquer it, you know, just to, to finish that chapter in your in your life.
0: Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, when I do get there, and I say when, because it will happen one day, I think it's uh, it will taste all the sweeter. You know, I think it's it's not been a, a straightforward journey, but nothing worth fighting for ever is. So, uh, you know, it's going to be quite an emotional moment, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get that right. So...
2: It's a very sad story, uh, of course. Um, do you have a more enlightening tale to tell <laughs> us about your, uh, really any adventure that you've been on? And it could be part of Everest or it could be something else as well, but something that was, uh,
0: you know, inspirational or a, a fun story that came out of some of these. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, until now it's all been kind of, kind of actually black and horrible stuff. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I, I, I've not really been to many places yet. I mean, I mean, after my age and stuff, I've not really had sort chance. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I've had some great adventures, and I think uh, actually being in Nepal itself is an amazing experience. Until things, you know, turn wrong, I, I had some great experiences. One challenge in particular, which I kind of did in, uh, which I did in a build-up of Nevereverus, was cycling from Chester to Chamonix in the French Alps. So that was about eight hundred eighty miles cycling in eight days, completely on my own carrying all my own gear and not really having a clue what I was doing. And I think, uh, that itself is adventure in it's kind of true form because you just have to kind of find a way to make one. And this was August, 2014. So, you know, going back some time now. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that for me is, has a lot of happy memories because it was, br- you know, it was brutal at the time. I mean, I'm cycling, you know, after a hundred miles a day and plus, I mean, on the final day, I mean, especially at, I'll, I'll cycle 160 miles. Um, and I remember, I mean, well, everything that could have gone wrong, went wrong. You know, I mean, on like the fourth day, I got to France at four in the morning and I was literally, I was literally falling asleep on the bike. And to the point that I I woke up a few times actually in a ditch because I literally fall, (laughs) I literally fallen asleep on the bike and just veered off the road. I was going slowly enough that I was unhurt, but I literally had to lie on a bench for half an hour and just sort of power nap. And that amazingly gave me the strength to cycle 100 miles, but I was just—I've never been so tired before. Now, after then, things went a bit better. But the second day, I mean, basically my route had completely failed because I used Google Maps, but I used the wrong thing, so it was trying to send me across roads that weren't really there, more kind of sort of fields and footpaths that, of course, I can't cycle on a road bike with, you know, ten, with you know, probably 10 kilos of gear on the back. Um, so in the end, I had to kind of like make my own route by sort of stopping and, you know, I, you know, like every sort of turn, I had to stop and check the map, which obviously I did a lot of time on. So basically I was arriving very, very late. And on the final night, I mean, I remember arriving, you know, so tired, I was actually basically hallucinating, you know, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And despite 130 mile bike ride, the only thing I could get for food after that was a, was a Snickers bar, which is just ridiculous. Of course, you know, on the you know, on the next day trying to cycle another hundred and thirty miles. Um and in the end had you know, it was meant to be seven days, but I did it in eight because on the second you know, on that other day I was just completely wrecked. Um on the final day, I mean, this was like something like the film Mr. Bean's Holiday. It was just crazy. I mean, I <laughs> I, I was cycling through the centre of a big town in Switzerland and I recall cycling into a kind of a tram line and being thrown off the bike and being picked up by some police officers. And I was okay. And then I got back on the bike. And then by this point, I ran out of food and water. I'm just kind of crawling along. And I was so tired that I managed to cycle up this huge pass. And it was, it was dark by this point. It's kind of a kind of a French forest with all these kind of like, you know, these kind of log huts there. And there's no, I'm on my own. I've, I've barely got any phone battery left. I'm out of water. I'm just completely empty and there's nobody else around you know, to help. Um, and I was only probably 30 miles away from Chamonix. I wasn't far away, but I knew that, well, I, I couldn't find the road. So you know, along the map, you know, I just couldn't work out where to go. Um, and basically, I was so tired, I hallucinated that I read a sign in the middle of the road warning me about uh, unexploded mines, which is, w- why would there be a-, a-, a warning about unexploded mines in the middle of a street in France? And why would the sign be uh, in English? But at the time, I didn't realize it was hallucination. Um, and basically in my confusion, I managed to cycle back down the hill that I just spent about half an hour cycling up. And then of course I realized that the only way to get there was to cycle back up this hill. And this time I was so, you know, I was so tired that I just lost my balance and just fell off the road. And literally, I I remember lying in the tarmac with the bike on my knee, my blood pouring out my leg and just lying there, just sobbing my heart out, just crying and crying and crying. Just wanted to go like curl up under, you know, under a tree but obviously that uh, on Everest, that's when you need to find the strength to push on. And, you know, I arrived at Chamonix at two in the morning and it, you know, there's no better feeling and it just proves that you just kind of keep on heading south, you know, and I lost half a stone in weight that week. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's probably one of my kind of happier tales anyway. Uh, it's amazing with the mind, you know, the tricks that the mind yeah, can yeah. play on you. In sure. These moments. Sure. But yeah, yeah. That's but crazy. You know, you know but on my epic 7 challenge which i did in 2014 you know i've got lots more moments like that which are all in the book as well so oh very cool i look forward to
2: reading it uh yeah it, it should be good so you were i was doing a little bit of research on you and you were actually a uh torchbearer for the london olympics in 2012
0: yeah that's right i was uh, but nearly four years ago actually ah, that's quite the honor how did you end up doing that yeah, I mean basically I was nominated because, you know, there was eight thousand places and I was nominated by my friend Mum. It wasn't I didn't really do a lot. I mean, I really didn't kind of earn it. I mean basically all I'd done was my kind of first challenge was which was the National Free Peaks Challenge, which involves you know the three highest mountains in Britain um in less than twenty four hours. And, you know, I mean at the time it was a pretty big step for me. I mean I was, of course actually now it isn't, but that obviously led to me doing all this and I raised 1800 pounds for charity at the time. And nowadays that's nothing much to me, but you know, bear in mind all my kind of past adversity and problems. I think she felt that was worthy of you know, you know, you know, and of course I was chosen for that, which is obviously, which is, which is crazy really. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool.
2: Well, you are only 20 years old and you have led an adventurous lifestyle <laughs> that so many people can merely dream of. <laughs> um, and imagine, you know, I really want people to be able to go find out more about you. So, what uh, social media links are best, or or website are best for people to go visit? And I'll put those in the show notes.
0: Yes, so please do. Um, uh, on my tweets, I'm at alex_staniforth That's S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H. Uh, or Facebook is facebook.com/alex_adversity. Um, and again on Instagram and you know and all that sort of stuff as well, but the best place will be to go uh, on my site uh, com, and on there there's links for my book, there's links for my charity, there's links to my you know there's links to my tweets, my Facebook, my Instagram and all that sort of thing. So probably best to go to uh, com and find out more of my expeditions and my journey really. Well, great. Well, I'll definitely
2: get those in the show notes, and I'll also put the link to your book on Amazon. Again, That'd like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to read it. Um, the Good. little bits of information you gave us on this show is just uh, – it really gets me to to want to go check out the rest of the story. So, Alex. So, that's great. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> absolutely. Thanks so much for spending some time and, and sharing your story. And it, uh, Yeah, it, thank you very much. Thank tr- you. It truly is inspirational to uh, to everyone in the adventure world, so I do appreciate it
0: yeah thank you very much and that's been great all right good deal take care Cheers.
2: if you would like to help alex out and make a difference go to his website alexstaniforth.com and visit his charity link don't forget to tell all of your friends about this episode and as always get out there and have some fun